Good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to Daniel chapter 7. Um, in this chapter, we're going to find a few things that are familiar to us from Daniel chapter 2. And we're going to find some things that are very different from Daniel chapter 2. It looks different, but um, an important thing to remember going into this chapter is what the events of Daniel 2. Daniel 2 was Nebuchadnezzar's dream of that statue with the different metals in it. It was four different metals, gold, silver, brass, and then iron. And um, there are um, a good way to think about that dream that Nebuchadnezzar had was the events of history from man's perspective. It saw it as Babylon being great and rich and powerful and better than the rest of the kingdoms that followed it. And then... Each one became a more useful metal for fighting, but less useful as far as to look at. Like gold is prized above silver, and silver is prized above brass. And so that one is man's perspective. In Daniel chapter 7, we're going to see a very similar prophecy, but it's going to be from God's perspective, what he thinks of these kingdoms. Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings, I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand upon the feet upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And behold, another beast <clears throat> another beast, a second, like to a bear, and it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I beheld, and lo, another, like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. I'm going to stop right there for a second. Um, So, Daniel Daniel chapter 7 is in the first year of the king Belshazzar, so... Um, Daniel backs up in the events of Daniel chapter 6 we saw the fall of Babylon he sees this vision before this happens and so we have a change in the book of Daniel from Daniel giving a history to Daniel relating the visions that he's seen over the course of his life and this one he had before Babylon fell and um, the first thing he sees is he's looking out and he sees the Mediterranean Sea and sees the winds out of every direction striving on the seas so he's He's seeing a great storm. And then up out of the sea comes, we've looked at three beasts so far. The first one he saw was like a lion that had eagle's wings. This one represents the same thing as the golden head in the um, second chapter. It's the kingdom of Babylon. The uh, kingdom of Babylon was a great and powerful kingdom. It was majestic like a lion. We, you know, Since we're little kids, we're told the king of the jungle is the lion. That's what we think of. But, and it had, it had eagle's wings upon it, and it moved around the earth very quickly like a, like a bird would. 
It moved over the face of the earth and took its dominion. But then there came a time when its wings were ripped off, and it came out of the heavens and stood on the earth like a man. And then it says a man's heart was given to it. This is the change from Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a great and powerful king that knew how to rule an empire, knew how to, to um, bring other nations into submission, and he was like a great flying lion. Belshazzar, his grandson, on the other hand, was a coward. He did not know how to do this. He failed to fight Cyrus. He hid in Babylon. He wouldn't fight anyone. And so he was like a lion. He had this great empire built by his grandfather, like a great, great, great lion. But he didn't have the heart needed to rule that empire. He had a heart of a man. And you think of a, a lion, it acts like a lion. But what if it acted like a man? It wouldn't do the same things that a lion does. It'd be, it'd be afraid. So that's the picture that he gets. And now he sees this before Babylon falls. So he hasn't seen the fulfillment of this, this lion being lesser than it was before. But he sees it ahead of time. So he knows what to expect. The next one that shows up is a bear. And it says it's raised up on one side. Um, the next kingdom that would arise were the Medo-Persian Empire, ruled by Cyrus. This was a kingdom that started off as little Persia by itself, the little subset, sub-state of Babylon, and it broke free, and then it conquered and became friends with an empire called Media. And so they worked together, and Cyrus ruled both of them, but they were not the same exact kingdom. They had to work together. But one side was more powerful than the other. That was Persia. Persia beat Media in a war, and so they were the greater kingdom. So this bear is raised up on one side. It works together, but one side is clearly greater. And it said it had three ribs in its mouth. And um, Daniel has shown how much territory this empire is going to get and only how much it's going to get, where it's going to stop. It's going to take three other kingdoms. And Cyrus and his son managed to take the kingdom of what was called Lydia, that's where Asia Minor is. After the Hittites fell apart, there was a kingdom of the Greeks that rose up in Lydia, and that's where Turkey is. That's the first kingdom that Cyrus took. And then he took Babylon. That was the second kingdom. And then his son took Egypt. That was the third kingdom. So those are the three ribs in this bear's mouth, and it didn't go any further. Their children after them tried to take the nation of Greece but couldn't get it. Daniel knew that. There was only going to be three. And then the next one we see is like a leopard that has four wings and four heads. That's a very strange-looking animal, and that's because it represents a very strange empire. It is, uh, you know, a leopard's a fast animal, but can you imagine a leopard that has wings, too? It's got four of them. It's a very fast animal, and this represents the kingdom of Greece under the man Alexander the Great. Now, the Persian Empire, the bear we just mentioned before, took several generations to get to its full extent. Alexander the Great's empire became, went from being a small territory over the top of Greece to being way bigger than the Persian Empire in just a couple years. It was fast, very, very fast. Then it has four heads. This is because after Alexander created his whole empire in just those couple of years, he got sick and he died. He didn't get to rule the empire that he created, and it fell into the hands of four of his generals. And so his kingdom kept going but it was in the hands of four different men. So there's four heads. There's four different leaders. And uh, those are the, it is the same kingdom, though, because if one king ruled over the city you lived in and another king came in and kicked him out, nothing would change because they were all exactly the same kind of guys. They all worked for Alexander. They all worked for him. So it didn't matter which one was ruling your city. It didn't feel any different. They just squabbled with each other. It's the same kingdom. 
And uh, that's an important point. If you read lots of commentaries on this that don't think about that, they'll get very, very lost very, very fast when they don't realize this is one kingdom. And so those, that's what Daniel's seen so far. He's seen the next um, around 400 years of human history, what's going to happen. And there's going to be this kingdom that rises up. It's going to do this. It's going to raise to this extent. And this next kingdom's going to raise in this way. And so he's seen a, a massive amount of, of history that's going to take place. And uh, he knows it ahead of time. And then um, the reason for this is so Daniel knows that God is true. He's preparing Daniel for what's going to happen in the future so he can warn the people of God to know what to expect. And um, it also shows that God is correct about everything. And so if he made a promise that hasn't happened yet, well, he said this was going to happen, and it happened exactly like he said it would. So going on to uh, um, verse 7. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth, it devoured and brake in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things. Now, there's lots of debates on what this kingdom is, and the reason there's lots of debates is because they don't keep reading, so we're going to keep reading. <laughs> I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued forth and issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. So Daniel sees this last beast come up, which is very different from all the other ones. He tells us it has ten horns on its head and has iron teeth. Very frightening picture. Right after that, though, he sees the thrones that belong to these beasts fall down, and he sees another throne. And he sees sitting on that throne the Ancient of Days. So don't get distracted with what we've seen before because this is the important part. He warns Daniel what's coming, but this is the important part. And um, so we have the Ancient of Days. We see God the Father sitting on his throne as judge of the whole world, of everything. And he's mentioned as having um, a fiery flame for his throne and his wheels as burning fire. Now... I have a very loose grip on this, but I think the wheels of a burning fire refers to the Holy Spirit, but I'm not going to explain all that right now, but I think that might be what that's referring to. So he's sitting on this throne, and there's fire issuing out from it, and there's millions of angels standing before him, ministering to him. They're not paying attention to these beasts. They're paying attention to the Ancient of Days. And in verse 11... I beheld then because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake. This is the little horn back over there on that other beast. It was speaking great words. I beheld even till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and time. What happened? 
The Ancient of Days didn't say anything. He didn't speak. He didn't pass judgment. It's just the beasts are there, and then the Ancient of Days is there, and then the greatest and most terrifying of them dies and is burnt up in a fiery flame, and the other ones have all their dominion taken away, but they get to continue to live. Why did this happen? Verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. So this last kingdom we find out from right here is the kingdom of Rome, because that is the kingdom that was in existence when the Son of Man ascended into heaven. There are people that will say this is talking about the end of time, but that's not true. The Son of Man is first off referred to as the Son of Man. He's not referred to as the Son of God. He's not referred to as Jesus Christ. He's referred to as the Son of Man. And I don't find that over in Revelation where he's described as the Son of Man anymore. Also, he comes back to heaven alone. He doesn't come with anyone. The anyone who's there is already waiting on him, and when he arrives, they... This is a shocking image for Daniel. I don't, I don't understand how he could even look at this without being dumbfounded because he's a Jew. They understand you cannot see God. And there is this individual who is like unto men. He's called the Son of Man. That's what he looks like. He looks like a child of men that goes up into heaven. Those who are ministering to the Ancient of Days turn away from him, go get the Son of Man, and bring him to the throne of the Ancient of Days. So you have this human being looking in the face of the Ancient of Days. That You can't do that. But this, this man is not normal. He's not a normal man. This man is equal to the Ancient of Days. It's because he is one with him. This is his son, Jesus Christ. So you have this, this great beast who um, is there and speaking, this little horn speaking great things, and then all of a sudden he's burned up. The Ancient of Days did not pass judgment on it. It didn't say anything to it. It's paying attention to this son of man coming before it. And the judgment that was set was not the judgment at the end of time. It was the judgment on the Son of Man. On the cross, Jesus Christ was judged for our sins. They were counted to him, and he had to die for them. When Christ raised from the dead, he was declared to be the Son of God with power. That was another declaration that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. He told the truth. It was a judgment that was passed. When Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, God passed another judgment, that all kingdoms of the earth would be thrown down and put under the feet of Jesus Christ. If you'll turn with me to over to the book of Hebrews, Paul explains this further. Let's go to um, Hebrews chapter 10 first. And um, let's do uh, verse 12 of Hebrews chapter 10 says, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. So, Paul says, a man went into heaven and sat down next to the Ancient of Days. It's the same exact picture as we see in the book of Daniel. He made an offering for sin. He went to heaven, and the judge in heaven accepted that one. He passed judgment upon what had happened. He said, that is sufficient. And he gave him a place to rest beside him because his work was done. And when he sits down, it says, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. Christ sat down and expected his father to give him the nations of the world. 
And that's what he did. We see that described over there back in the book of Daniel. Um, when Christ won and ascended back into heaven, his church reigned on the earth, and Christ reigned over it from heaven. All the kingdoms of the earth were put under his feet then. He beat sin on the cross. He beat death and hell when he raised from the dead. And he beat the nations of this world when he ascended back into heaven. They could not touch him. They cannot touch our king. Therefore, they cannot destroy his church. And um, now, Paul understands that this is something that might be difficult for us to understand because we can't see it. So he explains that back in Hebrews chapter 2, where he says in um, verse 7 of chapter 2, Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownedest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under, his, put under him. So Paul says, Christ came to the earth, made a little lower than the angels. They went back to heaven, was crowned with glory. We see that picture over there in Daniel chapter 7. And all things are put under his feet. These kingdoms, these beasts that we've seen, they, they raged on the earth. They were terrible. God even explains to us how vicious he thinks that they are. But they fall. But we don't see it. We may not see that because we're here on the earth with the leftovers of those kingdoms, with, with other men that think they can do great things, but they cannot. And we may not see exactly what God has declared. We may not see Jesus Christ ruling and reigning in all things. Then Paul says... But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death and crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. No, I don't see Jesus Christ sitting in heaven right now. No, I don't see how he's controlling this world and protecting his church. I can't see all of that. I'm, I don't have the wisdom. But I do see Christ, who came and saved me, died on a cross, and rose from the dead. I have seen that from the word of God. I have seen the effects of it in this world. I have seen people that have gone from death and sin to life in Christ. I have seen these things. So I have seen Jesus who made a promise, and God made a promise that he is ruling right now. I have seen what he has done. Those promises came true, so I trust in that one as well. Um, so what Daniel is seeing here is the ascension of Jesus Christ and the victory of his church over the kingdoms of this world. Um, I'm going to stop there because that is, the, that is the important part that we need to remember. That is the focal point of this chapter, and honestly, it's probably the focal point of the book, is the ascension of Jesus Christ. We went from seeing God working with Daniel in the previous chapters to Daniel seeing a very specific part of God, one of the most important to us because it's the Son of Man. Jesus Christ come in the flesh is God but we see him as a man. We can understand him. Before, it was hard to understand. Understanding the will of God without understanding Jesus Christ is almost impossible. That's the point of the gospel. Paul explains this in the book of Romans, that before Christ, what we saw was the law, and we had promises of something to come. But we didn't know how we could be right with God. We didn't know. But now we see Jesus, who has made us right with God. Now we understand. Jesus is a very important part, and God wants Daniel looking for this son of man. So when you go over to the Gospels and you read where Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man or calls himself the Son of Man, there's a lot of people that make the mistake of saying it's a humility statement. He's just saying he's like other people. That's not at all what that phrase means. 
that, that is saying, I am a man, yes, but I am better than all of you because I am equal to the Ancient of Days. In this vision, you have a man standing before the Ancient of Days. This is Jehovah God, the one you're not supposed to be able to see and live. He's saying, I am equal to him, but I am also a man. So when Jesus makes those statements over there, this is the image that the Jews would have thought of. This is the image that he intended for them to think of, not to think of him as a uh, human like us, but as a human that is equal to God. And uh, we need to remember that there are these terrifying things and there's kingdoms that rose up. God knew they were going to rise up, though. He was prepared for them. And his son came, and he was victorious, and he reigns in heaven already, and so they don't matter. And the coming weeks, I know I have not explained to you the, um, the details of that fourth beast, but um, I wanted to make sure you understand that it is Rome because we're talking about the first ascension of Jesus Christ after his crucifixion, not the end of time. So it's important to know that before we begin looking at that. But um, the focal point of the chapter is to remember that Jesus Christ was successful. He did win, and he did ascend to his father, and his father accepted it and gave him his, his throne right beside him. May the Lord bless you. Thank you, Brother John. I appreciate those words very much, in particular, that um, we get to see from God's perspective um, how he rules over the nations. Do, if we are left in any questions from Daniel chapter 2, they're somewhat answered in this. I say somewhat because we have the New Testament. Daniel did not. And if you look at the end of Daniel chapter 7, he says, Hitherto is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my cogitations much troubled me, and my countenance changed in me. But I kept the matter in my heart. We need to be very thankful that we have been given the revealed will of God in the New Testament in order to explain to us the things that are in the old and um, have comfort that these things are true and that though they may have frightened the prophets of old because they didn't fully understand them, even after Daniel asked a lot of questions, it's still troubling until you see the prophecy come true. I say that because Christ is coming back. That hasn't happened yet. And so if our cogitations trouble us, we're right in the same boat as Daniel. Um, but the fact of the matter is, Jesus says, I'm coming back. If you would, turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. I have been jumping around in my studies the past week and have lighted upon some things in this book that have made me want to study it a little more, and so I want to share a little bit of the things that I have found in this because it is it's a remarkable book. The church at Corinth had a lot of problems, uh, not the least of which was pride. Um, and honestly, I think most troubles that happen in people's lives and most troubles that happen in churches probably start with somebody being prideful. And you had an issue there at Corinth of division. Some would say I'm of Apollo, some of Paul, some of Cephas, some of Christ. So there were those divisions. There were divisions between the Jews and the Gentiles. There were divisions between the rich and the poor. There were divisions of those that had been given many gifts of the Spirit and those that didn't have many gifts of the Spirit, none of which followed after charity. And so Paul is writing this letter, and he loves this church. We know that because we're going to learn in a minute. He spent about two years of his ministry there. That's the longest the Apostle Paul ever spent anywhere. And so these folks are dear to him. But after he goes away from them, obviously, some rascals came in and, and really messed up their thinking. 
And the church very quickly went back to worldly thinking. And so when we look at this, I'm, I'm actually only going to look at the first verse of this, and then we're going to look at the history of the church at Corinth because I find it very, very interesting. Y'all know I like the beginnings of the letters because I think it encapsulates everything else Paul's going to say. And you're going to find in this that Paul says, y'all are divided, but I'm going to tell you how to get back together. And he mentions one man's name, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. Sosthenes, our brother. That's the subject that I want to talk to you about this morning. Before we do that, I want you to notice that Paul uses his term apostle here. You'll know, you'll recall from some of his other letters, he doesn't invoke the title apostle. He calls himself a servant or he calls himself a bondservant. He calls himself a slave. But when there's a big problem, he uses the term apostle. It's, it's kind of like the, the teacher walking back in the classroom, um, smacking the paddle on the board and saying, all right, now, <laughs> let's get your act back together. And so Paul is saying, you listened to me before as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to listen to me again because you're messing up. I've mentioned to you before that many so-called Christians today would say that the Apostle Paul and even Jesus were not very Christian in the way they handled things. Well, let's let the Bible determine what Bible words mean. Paul is a follower of Christ, and a follower of Christ gets stern sometimes, and so we got to get stern when problems are happening or the problems don't get fixed. They perpetuate and they get worse. A church that does not discipline its members does not get better. That's what was happening at Corinth. It got so bad at Corinth that people got physically ill because of their spiritual wickedness. These are children of God that are living like the world. They got physically ill to the point some of them even had died. This is a desperate situation that happened very quickly. This is not like it happened 100 or 150 years later. Paul had only been there a few years before, and now this has already happened again. But not only does Paul say that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ, he sets the theme of the entire letter in the next phrase, through the will of God. He said, I didn't become an apostle because it was my choice. If you'll recall, on the road to Damascus, his choice was to kill Christians to bind them, put them in prison, and eventually have them killed. That was the will of man in Paul. But he struck down on that road. He was changed, and he was given a new nature, and he was called to be an apostle. Actually, he was called to suffer. He learned that that day. But it was for the sake of the gospel. And so he is saying that I have this authority as an apostle, but it is by the will of God. To extrapolate that to the entire, uh, both letters to the church at Corinth, Paul is saying, all of this stuff that you have is true, but it's not because of who you are, and it's not by your will that you got it. You don't believe because you assented to some kind of, of uh, Hellenistic uh, higher intelligence because you studied more. You believe because the Spirit of Christ is in you. It's by God's will. I'm getting way ahead of myself. That's, that's chapter 2. But you see, that's what I love 
about these introductions that if you read the commentaries, most people just breeze right on through. No, look at the little bitty details and look at the entire letter. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. We know who he is. And if he were to say Timothy or Titus or Silas or Silvanus, who's also Silas, if he were to name any of those names next, we'd say, all right. But then he says, Ansosthenes. And he doesn't just say Ansosthenes. He says, Sosthenes, our brother, meaning my brother and yours. Now, we don't know who Sosthenes is unless we go read a little history in the book of Acts, which we're going to do in just a minute. But these folks knew who he was. So let's go look. Acts chapter 18. I've tried to find an equivalent in my mind to what it was like in Athens and Corinth and Achaia. Achaia is the country where Corinth is on the northern portion of it. It's down below Greece, out there on the Mediterranean Sea. I've tried to find a, a modern-day equivalent. Best I can come up with is you've got a combination of San Francisco, Atlanta, New York, Hong Kong, Name the worst cities in the, in the world and all of their hedonistic ideas and ecumenical ideas, and, and, but they're considered to be the great places of learning also and the hubs of, of commerce. That was this area. The richest of the rich lived there. The smart folks lived there. Athens, that's where all of the philosophers were. So certainly they had to have it better than the rest of the world. Well, Paul gets fed up with Athens. <laughs> And we come up in Acts chapter 18. This is in the middle of Paul's second preaching trip. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth. Now, that doesn't mean he went a couple hundred miles away. It's, if you check your map, it's not that far. He just heads over to the west for a little bit. And found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome and came unto them. Now we've got the timing of this whole thing right here. Claudius is the emperor of Rome. And there are some old writings where the believing Jews and the unbelieving Jews were arguing under the Latin name, arguing about a fellow named Crestus. Christ. And so Claudius says, I've had enough of this. All he saw were Jews arguing with one another, and it was causing problems, and so he kicked all of the Jews out of Rome, whether they were believers in Christ or just typical Jews that didn't believe in Christ. They're all kicked out. Priscilla well, and Aquila, they're believing Jews that were in Rome. They got kicked out, so they got to come down here to Corinth. They had to have some place to go, and by the providence of God, the apostle Paul meets them. And because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought, for by their occupation they were tent makers. This is something that the Apostle Paul did, and it's something that true evangelists of the gospel do, and that is they support themselves. Now, it would be very beneficial, and in the case of the Apostle Paul, there were places where churches that he had once established heard that he was traveling, and they sent money there to help. 
When Paul gets to Corinth, it sounds like he's pretty much on his own. Matter of fact, I think he's, he might be there by himself. And so he has a trade where he can make some money. A preacher that is not willing to work to feed himself or his family is not following the pattern of the Apostle Paul. The other side of that, though, Paul is not pastoring at this time. This is not a legitimate argument to say we shouldn't support our pastors. Again, I'm not complaining about Mount Perrin. I've just heard the argument. So, well, Apostle Paul, he, he always had a job. No, he didn't. In this case, he had a job. And in some other times, he had a job. But a lot of times he didn't. But the big difference is Paul wasn't ever pastoring a single church. Those that pastored, if the church was able to, they supported them. And so what we have here is the Apostle Paul willing to go into Corinth. I mean, this is, this is not a pleasant place to go. For someone that's trying to live righteously, to go into a place where every sin you could possibly think of is done right there in the street and is actually done in the name of religion. It's not just that they were sinning, but that was the basis of their religion. And so they thought that was the absolute morality, which was to be completely immoral. And Paul goes there. And when Silas, and I, like, I love this next phrase. I skipped a verse. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. The Apostle Paul went into this place, but he didn't go to Las Vegas and start acting like everybody else in Vegas. He went into Vegas and he found the synagogue and he started preaching. He kept doing what he'd been doing. But there's a big key here. The Lord helped him out. He sent him Aquila and Priscilla first. It is dangerous for a man to go traveling, preaching the gospel by himself. That's the reason the Lord sent him forth two by two. They encourage one another to righteousness, and they encourage one another when the world attacks and they are discouraged, they can encourage one another to keep going. So we're going to find that that's the pattern. But he is preaching, and he's already persuading Jews and the Greeks. But then notice this, and when Silas and Timotheus, that's Timothy, were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. Now, I didn't understand this when I was a younger preacher. But I kind of understand it now that I've got some gray hair and there's some younger preachers coming up. Silas is about the same age as Paul. May have been, may have been older. But he is typically, when they travel together, he was the secondary. Timotheus, he's young enough to be their son. These two guys show up and it fires him up. He is already preaching the gospel, but when they get there, he's pressed in the spirit. He doubles down, he cranks it up, and he really starts to preaching. Like I said, when I was younger, I didn't understand this when older preachers saw younger preachers and it made them want to preach more. I understand that now. If you ever want to, well, Oftentimes, preachers turn into a mutual admiration society. They just compliment one another all the time and don't really iron sharpening iron. So that's, but that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is I know when I've heard good preaching because I want to preach. 
it gets me to thinking more and more about what God has done, and I want to talk even more. That's what happens here. These two guys didn't come and just be silent. These two guys came and probably started teaching a well. Paul says, all right, yeah. He grabs a hold of a subject that they finished with and keeps going with it. The brotherhood of the ministry works that way. And this is in a nasty place. And when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. Now, his focus really centered in on the Jews. He probably had an easier time converting some Greeks. But the Jews, they were very set in their ways. And so he focuses on them even more. And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, <laughs> you know, typically when we see somebody acting in unbelief, they're labeled as somebody that's opposing God. But Paul says they oppose themselves. You need to think about that as children of God. If we turn away from the teachings of God, yes, we are opposing what God has said, but we're opposing ourselves. We are, God designed us to receive and to live off of the word of God. And so if we're not in attendance to the word of God, we're opposing ourselves. We're starving ourselves. It hurts the church. But Paul says, hurts you. Because this is what it was designed for. And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, whoo, sounds like they did the same kind of thing that those unbelieving Pharisees did back when Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath that said, you've done it by Beelzebub himself. They spoke against God. They spoke against his son. He shook his raiment and said unto them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean from henceforth. Henceforth, I will go unto the Gentiles. Now, Paul is not saying, you didn't listen to me, so you're condemned to everlasting torment. He said, your blood be on your own heads. That's a statement of saying, I have come to you with the reconciling word of God in the gospel for you to live by. And if you don't live by it, then it's, what happens to you happens to you. If I'm not mistaken, this is before 70 A.D., and if you think it was just the Jews in Jerusalem that got beat up and killed, you're wrong. That was a move against all Jews. That was a genocide that happened all over the place. And so Paul was warning them, this is how you are to live in the kingdom of Christ. But he says, it's on your own hands. I'm free of you. I go from henceforth and will go into the Gentiles. And if you don't read anything else, you're thinking, all right, Paul's going to pack up his bags. He's say, see you later, Priscilla and Aquila. Y'all can come with me if you want to. And he gets on a ship, and he goes to Spain or to England or something like that. That's what's pictured in our mind, but notice what happens. And he departed thence and entered into a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshiped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. <laughs> that is hilarious to me. He's here in the synagogue. And he said, I've had enough. Y'all aren't listening. But I know there's this guy named Justice who does believe, and so I'm going to go there. So he goes next door. 
He literally goes next door. And synagogues are not like these massive cathedrals and things that are built today. Building probably smaller than this one, looks like an apartment, is an apartment, and there's another apartment next door. And that's where Paul goes. We find justice. He worshiped God. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house. And many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Whoa. So Paul's in the synagogue. And he says, you folks aren't believing. I'm going next door. Paul walks out the door. The leader of the synagogue followed him. I think he literally walked out of the synagogue that day. He's believing, and he's baptized. So these guys are protesting the stuff that Paul is saying, and their own leader abandons them to follow after the apostle Paul, who's teaching about Jesus Christ being the Messiah. And many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. There's believer's baptism right there. Cannot be baptized properly unless it's evident that you're a believer. I think it's pretty evident that Crispus is a believer. Why? Because he had a good paying job over here and he laid it down. As soon as he became a follower of Christ, I guarantee you he lost his job. I also can guarantee you because we're going to find out what happened to him. This is a contentious, contentious situation. Paul is bold. Paul is correct. Paul had gone what God had told him to do, and Paul is following the influence of the Holy Spirit. But I can tell you from my own experience, when you preach and you preach and you preach and people fight against you, it gets very discouraging. Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision. Be not afraid, but speak and hold not thy peace. That's an endorsement of everything that Paul had done up to this point, And he's saying, keep doing it. For I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee. Whoa. Where had he just been before? Thessalonica and Berea and Athens. Well, they kept trying to kill him. They chased him from city to city. But he said, while you're here in the nastiest of nasties, you got the holiest of holies, Corinth, that's the nastiest of nasties. While you're here, nobody's going to touch you. What an amazing testimony. But look at this. For I have much people in this city. If the Lord blesses and we do go through the letter to the Corinthians, I want you to remember that phrase. That before Paul really established his ministry in Corinth, Jesus has already told him, I have already, I have much people in this city, even before the Apostle Paul has a major influence in that city. That plays into many of the problems that were happening at Corinth, that they thought it was because of the ability of the preacher or their own intellectual abilities that they became believers. We have testimony right here from the mouth of the Lord himself that those that believed were not because of their abilities, but because God already had them. He chose them in the covenant of election. Paul's going to deal with that in the letter to, the Corinth, to Corinth, by the way. So yes, if you don't like election, you got to rip First and Second Corinthians out of your Bible as well. You're not going to get a whole lot left <laughs> in your Bible if you keep ripping all those out. I have 
much people in this city. Now that has to be an extreme encouragement to a preacher that believes in grace. Because Paul is told to go and preach to everybody. I am told to go and preach to everybody. I don't know who's a child of God and who is not. And so very often, if we do the work of an evangelist, you might have those that are crying out against you. I have heard word from some of our brethren. It happened to me in South Africa. There were more people arguing against me and Brother Vernon than were arguing with what we were saying and, and agreeing with it. There's a lot of adversity to it. But if you know ahead of time that God's got a lot of children of God in there, say, all right, this is going to be one of those times where I get to see those that I'm going to spend everlasting and everlasting with. Now, don't forget, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I came not to baptize. So this, this is not Paul fo focusing on, oh, I get to baptize a lot of people. It is Paul is finding the children of God. Paul's ministry is being confirmed by the Lord Jesus Christ himself here. Remember when he said the gates of hell shall not prevail against it? The gates of hell were at Corinth, and they didn't prevail because God had a people there. He changed their hearts. He made it possible for them to believe, and Paul was obedient and preached. And he continued there, look at this, a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. We don't find that phrase anywhere else in Paul's ministry. If he spent that long in a place, it's because he was in a prison. But as far as being a free man, this is the big one. And when Gallio was the deputy of Achaia, the Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat. All right, so Gallio, we got to know a little bit about this guy. His brother, I think it's he, Gallio was adopted into his family, so it's his adoptive brother, was a man named Seneca. If you've studied any philosophy at all, you come across that name. Seneca was the man that taught Nero when he was a child. We know what Nero did. Now, Nero had an evil heart. It's obvious. But if Seneca is the one that taught him, where did Nero get his ability to argue and to wage war? He got it from this philosopher, Seneca. Now, Seneca wrote about his brother, Gallio that he's a soft and an easy man. Didn't call him a pushover, but it sounded like the guy just wanted everybody to get along. Didn't want any uproar. Kind of like some of those that were in Jerusalem. They didn't want the fight. And so they kept saying, no, 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 that's let's, let's okay. You know, it was Herodias that wanted John the Baptist killed, not Herod, because he was a wuss. <laughs> he didn't stand up for the position that he's supposed to be. Gallio's kind of the same way. He just wanted everything peaceful. And so the Jews saw the opportunity that while this guy is our governor, he's kind of a pushover. He doesn't like fights, so we're going to take Paul down there, and we're going to deal with this once and for all. He's taking too many of our folks away. He's teaching against what we say. And so they're going to use Roman law, which says you can't have a new religion, which, by the way, Christianity is not a new religion. It is the natural offspring of Judaism. They're going to take him to this guy that we know we can convince to get rid of Paul, and then we'll be done with him. And when Gallio was the deputy of Achaia, the Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat. All right, now, Jesus had said, no man's going to lay hands on thee to hurt thee. 
They laid hands on him. That's what an insurrection is. But Paul knew he wasn't going to get hurt. Even when this happened, Jesus said, nobody's going to hurt you. You No man's going to lay hands on you to hurt thee. They might lay hands on you, which means you might have problems and you might have difficulties in your life, Paul, but it's not going to be to the point that you're you're not going to be killed here, Paul. I think this is one of those times where Paul learned where his death was going to be, was going to be at Rome. It wasn't going to be in Corinth. It was going to be in the big, big place. They brought him to the judgment. They brought him before Gallio, saying, This fellow persuadeth men to worship God contrary to the law, contrary to their interpretation of Moses' law, and they're trying to insinuate that it's contrary to what Rome allows. That's why we're here. And when Paul was now about to open his mouth, now Paul's a Roman citizen. This is a Roman province. He's allowed to speak on his behalf, and so he's not doing anything unusual. And when Paul was now about to open his mouth, Gallio said unto the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or, or wicked lewdness, O ye Jews, reason would that I should bear with you. But if it be a question of words and names and of your law, look ye to it, for I will be no judge of such matters. They brought him. So he's violated our law. That's the law that's under consideration. If this is a question of how you interpret a scripture or how you interpret names, obviously the name Jesus Christ had come up. They'd heard of this problem before over in Rome. That's why Priscilla and Aquila are here. Galileo's like, I ain't going to have any of this. We're not going to have a big to-do about this. I'm not going to make this a legal issue. Y'all deal with it. And he drave them from the judgment seat. That doesn't mean he politely asked them to leave. That means he snapped his fingers, his guards armed, grabbed a hold of them, and threw them out. I'm not going to have any of this. He showed his power. Kind of probably a shock to these unbelieving Jews. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat, and Gallio cared for none of those things. Wait, wait a minute. Who? Sosthenes. Who is he? The chief ruler of the synagogue. Verse 8 says Crispus is the chief ruler of the synagogue. And now Sosthenes is? Yep. Crispus left. Sosthenes is the one they chose. Sosthenes is the one that brought Paul before Gallio. And here's what happened. Sosthenes is... Making the testimony. He has to be. He's their ruler. So he's bringing the, the argument. Gallio says, kick them all out. They kicked out everybody except Sosthenes. And the Greeks, the unbelieving ones, who hated the Jews because they always caused problems, said, ha, here's our chance. And so they beat him up right there in front of Gallio. Gallio shows his true colors. He didn't like the Jews either because he doesn't stop them. He kicked them out and said, I'm not going to have anything to do with this. He drove them out. The Greeks saw their opposite. Oh, Gallio doesn't like the Jews either because he drives them out by the sword. And so we're going to beat this guy, Sosthenes. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. And Gallio cared for none of those things. And Paul, after this, tarried there yet a good while, 
and then took his leave of the brethren and sailed thence into Syria. With him Priscilla and Aquila, having shorn his head in Sennacherib, for he had a vow. Well, we can go into that to another time, but here's what happened. Paul stayed. He stayed another six months. Sosthenes was the guy that tried to have him tried and kicked out or killed. And yet we have Ansosthenes, our brother. Seems to me the same thing happened to Sosthenes as happened to Paul. Sosthenes thought to persecute the church of the Lord. And the Lord changed his heart, just like he had changed Crispus's heart. Paul mentions Sosthenes to the Corinthians because they know who he is. They know who he is because he was the leader among the Jews there. They know who he is because he was the leader that was going to have Paul driven out. But now he's with Paul. There's your key to the Corinthian letter. You folks think you're divided. Well, let me tell you about a division. Me and Sosthenes. And now we're brothers. Why? Because of the grace of God. That's the theme of the Corinthian letter, that it's not about how smart you are. It's not about how powerful you are. It's not about how much you know, how much you know how to argue, how much you know how to debate, how much philosophy you know, how, big a, uh, uh, how sharp a sword do you wield. It's not about how much money you have. Because if you want to know about a division, it was me and Sosthenes. Hey, Sosthenes is my brother. And Paul never takes credit for that. Why does he do that? Because everybody at Corinth was taking credit for what they had done or giving credit to the wrong person. See, the true gospel of grace does not give credit to the believer. Neither does the true gospel of grace give credit to the preacher. It gives all of the glory to God. So when we get over in chapter 2 and Paul says, I say, uh, I didn't want to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified, he is going to deal with the why do you believe and why do some people not believe. He's going to talk about sovereign grace through that entire thing. Why is Sosthenes' name there? Paul was the chief of sinners, he called himself. I think Sosthenes would say the same thing. Also, Sosthenes, our brother. Our brother, not your brother, our brother. This man wanted me killed, but he's my brother now. We forgave one another. Church at Corinth, you need to forgive one another because forgiveness is of Christ. What a wonderful letter we have. Paul, beginning with just this man's name, not insignificant. I think it's the key to the whole thing. What Paul experienced there at Corinth and what Paul writes back to the church at Corinth after they so quickly turned back to the world. They needed a pastor. Paul was a, an over-shepherd to the pastors there, and so he needed to step back in as he does with us. And so that's the reason we use these letters. Is Yes, we have our under-shepherds, but we have the Word of God given to us through the apostles to instruct us in things, and there was not a unity at Corinth. And so Paul doesn't just say, let's all get along. 
he points fingers. And he says, this is what you're doing wrong. But he doesn't do it punitively. He does it so that they have an opportunity to repent and to turn from their ways and to follow after Christ again with their brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul doesn't write this letter to divide the church at Corinth. It was already divided. Paul writes this letter to reunite the church at Corinth. So when we discuss doctrine, it's not to divide. It is to unite under one banner. And that banner over us is what? Love. May the Lord bless you all is my prayer.